Well, good morning, church family. Um, today, Good Friday, is an incredibly important day on the Christian calendar. It's a day that is very somber and sobering. It's a day where we reflect intentionally upon the crucifixion, um, the death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I'm thankful that you've um, tuned in to this online service this morning. And uh, I pray that even as we reflect on something as horrific as the cross and the, the crucifixion, that your heart is stirred uh, to love Jesus and uh, to hold fast to Him even more so today. I want to invite you to take your Bibles and open up to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 27. And we're just going to spend some time walking through the account of the crucifixion from Matthew's perspective. And as you're turning there and getting yourself situated, I want to just begin by bowing in a word of prayer and asking for God's blessing and help for us and uh, let's do that together, church. Bow with me and, and let's unite our hearts together in prayer. God in heaven, uh, we do bow before you. And Father, we confess that you are Lord of all, that you are King of kings. We confess, Father, that you are the sovereign and good creator of the universe. Lord, we confess that we are um, your creation. Um, and, and Lord, we confess that that. Uh, we have rebelled against you in so many ways. And God, that is really the story of your creation. Humanity living in rebellion towards you, our, our good creator and our sovereign king. And Father, we just want to acknowledge um, that the cross is necessary because of our sin and our rebellion. And we pray, Lord, that today on Good Friday... God, you would help us to look deeply into the reality of the crucifixion, that we would see, Father, the beauty and the glory of the cross in maybe fresh in new ways. God, we pray that you would remind our hearts and stir our hearts. And God, I even pray that this morning there would be some who are listening right now, God, who maybe for the first time would understand both the horror and the beauty of the cross. And God, I pray that some today would bow the knee to you and confess you as Lord and Master. God, take this time now, use it, we pray, for our good and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, our lives are filled with many ups and downs, and we're usually surprised by both of those, both the ups and the downs. And what's more surprising is that sometimes the things that we thought were ups end up actually being downs. And the things that we thought were downs actually end up being the things that are ups. It's interesting how this works in our life. Sometimes the greatest blessing, um, the thing that we perceive to be the greatest blessing, brings for us the greatest pain. Think of the countless stories of those who have won the lottery thinking it's the greatest blessing on earth, only to find out that it brings so much pain and struggle and turmoil into their lives. Or think of the greatest pain that ends up becoming the greatest blessing. For many of us, we have had to experience great pain personally in our lives. We've had to hit rock bottom in our sinful condition and sinful pursuits only so that we might look up and see the beauty of the gospel and the grace of God. The thing that produced the most pain in our life actually brought about the greatest blessing in our lives. And these are true in a variety of different ways in our lives. And this simple illustration really just helps us to understand this concept of irony. I've entitled this message, The Irony of the Crucifixion. 
Irony is the saying or doing of something that implies the opposite. What's said or done actually indicates the reverse. And the Bible is full of ironic situations in which God overturns the world's wisdom by doing the opposite of what is expected. People are punished, for example, by their own sin. The persecution of the church is the catalyst for the church's growth. Paul claims to have strength through weakness. But perhaps the Bible's greatest expression of irony is actually seen in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. At the cross, where we see that death actually leads to triumph, crucifixion leads to coronation, judgment leads to salvation. It's not just the single event either that is loaded with irony. It is the entire story of the cross and the story of the gospel that is saturated with divine irony. And what is most ironic is when people mean to say something in mockery, and in what they're saying, it actually verifies the truth. Irony at its core is saying one thing and meaning another. And throughout the story of the crucifixion, we see people saying one thing in jest or, or mocking and scoffing in Jesus. But in reality, what they're saying is actually verifying the very truth that they're scoffing. It is really the epitome or the culmination of divine irony. And while the irony in this event is multifaceted, it's seen in some really powerful and potent ways. And I just want to, this morning with you, um, look at how irony saturates the story of the crucifixion. First, notice this, the irony of a crucified Christ. The irony of a crucified Christ. In verse 32, look at it with me. Matthew writes this, as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. They sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Here, Matthew describes for us the condition of Jesus. Just prior to this, we know that Jesus was flogged. He was beaten. He was tortured. And they beat him so badly that at this point, he cannot make the journey to, to Golgotha with the cross on his own back. One of the ways that the Romans would continue to mock and scorn those who were being executed was to have them bear the weight of the cross, to drag it on their bloody body all the way up, exhausted, all the way up to Golgotha, the place of the cross, place of the skull, excuse me. Here Jesus is in so much pain and anguish, he's so exhausted that they conscript a bystander to do the work for him, a man named Siren, Simon of Cyrene. And the irony here is, is thick. Here now, as Jesus marches to the place of the skull, the roads are lined with people who are watching. Think just the Sunday before on what we call Palm Sunday. The streets were lined with people celebrating and praising 
Jesus Christ hailing him as the son of David, the promised Messiah. And now the praise from Palm Sunday has become a spectacle of horror on Good Friday. Crowds that cheered him as the promised Messiah now clamor to see the crucifixion of Christ. He will not take anything to drink to dull the pain. What's offered to him, he refuses. Rather, he willingly chooses to face the horror of the crucifixion head on with all of its agony, with all of its pain. And it's ironic because to them, to those who are crucifying him, to those who are cheering on the crucifixion of Jesus, Jesus has actually become less than a common criminal. He's worthless and without any dignity at all. They treat, consider this, consider the irony here. They treat God incarnate as subhuman. The only value in their eyes is the, the meager earthly possessions that they can steal from him by gambling for them instead of the massive eternal treasure that Jesus longs to give them through the cross. It's striking that the only value people, people often see in Jesus is the temporary benefit that he provides rather than the eternal blessing that he promises. And if Jesus doesn't give us what we want, we kick him to the curb like he's some kind of a fraud. Verse 37, we see that's exactly what the Jews have done to Jesus. Over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. This is a tongue-in-cheek way of mocking him, but again, the irony is that, that the sign actually reads true. It is an accurate description of who Jesus is. It's just not the description of the kind of king or the kind of Messiah that the Jews were anticipating. They wanted a political king. They wanted someone who was going to come out and physically stamp out the oppression of the Roman ruling authorities over them and reestablish an earthly kingdom in their midst to bring Israel back into a place of prominence on the world scene. They read the scriptures and they understood part of what God had promised, but not the full extent. And yet, so interestingly here, what they mock him with is actually, in reality, the truth. They wanted man's kingdom, man's way. He was bringing God's kingdom, God's way. And the Messiah would conquer through the cross. Secondly, we see the irony of a sacrificed Savior. Matthew goes on to write these words in verse 38. He says, Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from that cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders, they mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. You might say that this is not just the irony of a sacrificed Savior, but this is the irony of an unsaved Savior. The mockery here ramps up. They're throwing his statements and his teachings in his face. 
You, you claimed to, to t that you were going to tear down the temple and rebuild it. Where, where do we see that now? You claimed to be God's son. Where's your father now? You see, they believe, ironically, that he is being punished in this moment of crucifixion for his blasphemous, unrighteous teachings and declarations, for the claims that he's made about himself, about God, about the coming kingdom. You can see the scene in verse 41 there, can't you? I mean, it's an astounding scene of ironic declarations being made by not only the, the watching crowds, but by the religious elite of the day, the Pharisees and the scribes and the elders of Israel. Everybody joins in in mockery. But the irony is that what they mock him for is actually what he's accomplishing and proving through this very uh, event itself. They see failure while he's in the middle of succeeding. They see defeat, but he is actually bringing victory. It's like a chess match where one opponent believes that he's in control, but he's actually been playing into his opponent's plan and strategy. And just when he thinks victory is his, he hears the words checkmate from his opponent. You see, what's so ironic about this situation is that these religious leaders should have known. I mean, Jesus was constantly showing them that they had the scriptures that point ultimately to him, but they failed to see. They failed to understand. Like Nicodemus in John chapter 3, who doesn't understand how the Holy Spirit works to bring new life. And Jesus looks at him and says, you, you the teacher of Israel, does not understand these things? The implication is that they should have known, they should have seen. In fact, what is happening here is that Matthew is actually speaking of Psalm 22. And he's drawing in Psalm 22 into this picture to, to show that Jesus is actually in the middle of fulfilling prophecies. It's, it's so fascinating. He's in a sense saying that you are fulfilling prophecy as you reject it itself. The irony in here is so rich. Repeatedly, God had shown through the scriptures, through direct prophecies, through the religious practices that he had instituted, through repeated patterns and events in the scriptures, they should have known, they should have seen, but they didn't. And here is the culmination of it all. They knew that he proclaimed salvation. Jesus was not unclear about the message and the mission that he was on. And they tell him here to save himself. They knew Jesus claimed to come and save others. And they mock him because he cannot, it appears, to even save himself. Come down and we'll believe, they say. But the truth is they never would have believed even if he came down from the cross. Every miracle Jesus ever did only caused their hatred of him to increase. They found a way to excuse the miracles, even declaring that the things that Jesus did were by the power of Satan. But here's the reality. If Jesus had saved himself, he would not have saved anyone else. And because he would not save himself, he became the savior of the world. You see, the irony is that he must sacrifice his life 
so that he can offer new life to those who believe. He must take our place as a substitute. Sin must be punished. He must be sacrificed in order to save. If he got down from the cross, we would have no way to get to God. This is the irony of a sacrificed Savior. Next, we see the irony of a suffering son. Here in verse 45, it says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemai sabbathini, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let's let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. The reason he had to stay was to endure the full payment for sin. He had to suffer the wrath of God. And the irony is that here he's already been mocked as being the Son of God. He's already been scoffed at because this is exactly what Jesus claimed to be, to be God's Son. And you can hear the sense of bewilderment in the, the mocking crowds and in the Pharisees and the scribes and in the, the elders all around him, right? Where's your father now? I mean, we can understand this at a strictly human level. I mean, what father allows his son to suffer when in, a, when in a moment and in an instant, he can relieve all of the suffering. He can remove him from the, the suffering and the pain, I mean, what kind of a, a father could listen to their son cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What kind of father could do that and not run to the rescue of his child? And yet, the father did not. The father could not. You see, this was the son's willing choice. His divine will being one with the father's. This was the plan from eternity past. The Father and the Son committed to accomplishing the redemption of humanity. The Son willingly laying down His life, suffering the full weight of God's wrath on behalf of sinners like you and me. And here it tells us that in His human suffering, in His human will, He cries out, this word cried is, is used only here in the New Testament. It's an incredibly strong verb, and it indicates this powerful emotion or an appeal to God. This is an agonized expression of a, a real sense of alienation from God the Father. And it's reflecting the full meaning of Jesus' death as a ransom for many. Jesus, in other words, is experiencing temporarily alienation from God so that we, those who deserve alienation from God, can receive relationship with God. This is... Remarkably, 
the only time in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where Jesus addresses God without calling him Father. The words are again a quotation from the first verse of Psalm 22, a messianic psalm of David pointing towards Jesus Christ. Uh, again, an indication that, that they should have known, those who knew the scriptures should have seen that this had to be the case. The Son of God must suffer. The promised King must be sacrificed. And here the words remind us that he is in agony. And the darkness that covers the earth is a powerful reminder that God's presence has moved among Jesus, overpowering Jesus, the wrath of God being poured out in full on Jesus Christ. The agony here is more than physical Jesus Christ is bearing the full weight of sin, the full weight of the wrath of God, and that sense of alienation from the Father, that experience of being ripped apart from the Father, you can hear it in the cry. And they offer him refreshment, and he's mocked once more. Let Elijah help him, but there could be no human offer, listen, to quench his thirst. His only, only his life would be offered up to quench the thirst of God's wrath against sin. He cried out again with a loud voice, and in this moment we see that he yielded up his spirit. The suffering of God's Son is completed. It is finished. See, the Father could not run to rescue his Son out of love, because through the loving suffering of this son, Jesus Christ, he would ransom and bring many sons to glory. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. This is the great irony of a suffering son. It relieves the suffering from those of us who deserve it. And lastly, notice this, we see the irony of a confessing crucifier. Here we see in verse 51, Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Listen to this. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. The ones who nailed him to the tree are the very ones he came to save. Jesus didn't come to save saints. He came to save sinners. He did not come for the righteous, but the unrighteous. He didn't come for the healthy. He came for the sick. And the truth is, loved ones, listen, we all stand. Every single one of us stands with the mockers and the scoffers. We stand with the, the Pharisees and the scribes and the elders of Israel. We stand with the skeptics and the cynics. We stand with the self-righteous and with the self-sufficient. We stand with the Pharisees and the centurion. 
This is why we can sing these words. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. You see, we played a crucial part in crucifying the Lord of glory. Every one of us played a part. Not one of us is excused. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God invites those responsible for the death of His Son to repent and believe and experience the salvation of His Son. This is the irony of all ironies. We are called, all of us, to confess not only our sin, but also to confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We are called, along with all who crucified Jesus, who, whose sin held him there, to say with this centurion, truly this was the Son of God. The irony of ironies. God rescues those responsible for his death through the very death itself. I wonder this morning, have you confessed Jesus as Lord? Have you confessed that it was your sin that held him there? As you look at the cross this morning, I hope you can look there with great joy, knowing that Jesus Christ paid it all in full. His declaration, his last breath has declared it is finished. But why does God use irony? There is one singular reason, and that is this. It is to highlight human weakness and helplessness in order to magnify divine power and wisdom. The irony of the cross is that the mighty are brought low, the prideful are humbled, the wise are made foolish. And the greatest purpose of all is that all may boast in the power and wisdom of God. You see, irony increases glory. What appears to be tragic is really triumph. But that will be seen in full in three days' time. So let the irony of the cross and the crucifixion grip your heart now. Soak in both the horror of the crucifixion, but also in the healing of the cross. Declare and celebrate together this morning that truly Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And wait expectantly to rejoice in full on Sunday with the triumph of Jesus will be complete and made visible to all. Church, as we close our time together this morning, let me encourage you. This is a sweet moment of reflection and quietness. Why not just pause with your family or individually? Bow your heads in a moment of quietness now. End your time together simply meditating and reflecting upon the crucifixion of Jesus what he accomplished through his death on the cross. See your sin that held him there. See him crying out in agony, but see him giving his last breath and declaring for you and for me, it is finished.